Hello, I'm Charles Wright, and welcome to the Complete in Christ podcast, where we endeavor to fit the pieces of our lives together according to the Word of God. We're continuing the series titled Heaven, Earth, and the Temple, where we're fleshing out the idea that at its core, the Bible is a narrative of how heaven on earth was torn apart by sin into heaven and earth, and how God plans to reunite the two domains once again. Now, recall in our last episode, we talked about that there's two domains, God's domain and man's domain. We see in Genesis that in the beginning, the heavens and the earth Uh, God's domain represented by the heavens and man's domain represented by the earth are overlapping in creation. They're overlapping in the Garden of Eden. But then sin comes in, enters the picture and drives them apart. The biblical writers use the term for heaven, Shamayim, to describe both the skies where the birds, the clouds and the stars were. But then they also use that word to describe the realm and the domain where God resides. And think about it, right? Heaven is being used as a metaphor for God's domain, because just like God, the heavens are beyond, they're transcendent, they're unending, they're present but unattainable, they're observable but intangible, and they become a fitting metaphor and idea for where an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God would reside. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at the garden as the temple. So let's get to it. Now, when you think about a garden, most of our experience with gardens is probably pretty modest. Something that maybe you had in your backyard growing up or even maybe today with a few flowering plants and maybe some vegetables. But if you've ever experienced botanical gardens, maybe in the town that you live in or the area and the region that you're from, I think that gardens like that are more in line with kind of the Near Eastern or the ancient uh, Near Eastern context of gardens. For example, if you think about uh, the Babylon, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if you were to look those up online and see some artist renditions and some descriptions of that garden space, you're really being introduced and seeing that a garden in a ancient Near Eastern context was really an experience, almost an otherworldly experience, where uh, the king usually had created a garden and in this garden had placed all sorts of animals and all sorts of vegetation and plants, things that weren't necessarily indicative of the area that the garden may actually be located in. But it was uh, designed to to almost transport you to a place that was different than than your everyday normal frame of reference, if you can think of it that way, expansive landscapes that you can actually move through, not a garden space like we have in our backyards where you can kind of stand and kind of take it all in from one vantage point, but actually an area that was expansive that you could experience as you move through seeing different types, again, of vegetation and plants and even sometimes animals with water running through canals and and uh, waterways that not only provided hydration to the vegetation that was in the area, but also just added to this sense of, of this is a special place. This is different than where you inhabit kind of day in and day out. When you go to these gardens, it's communicating something about that king who has created that garden. And I think when we kind of think about gardens in that aspect and in that uh, frame of reference, 
we're getting closer to what's happening in Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter two, uh, verses eight and nine, and then Genesis chapter three, when we are kind of introduced and we see this garden that God plants in Eden. And so let's take a look here at Genesis chapter two, verses eight and nine. And it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we see in Genesis three and eight, uh, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And a couple of things that I just want to highlight here, and we're going to talk about even more as we move through not only this episode, but future episodes too, is that kind of in the, in the same vein, right? If we think about this as a mental picture that's being painted, the near Eastern context of Kings establishing gardens and these gardens being places that were representative of the king's influence, of the king's wealth, of the king's status, and those types of things, we see God, right, planting a garden. The the Obviously, the big difference here is that where earthly kings are creating these garden spaces out of the land and out of the earth, you have God, who is the king of everything, creating his garden space and it is the earth. It is the world. It is the cosmos. It is everything that there is. But there's a couple of things I think uh, that's interesting to kind of pull out of here is that one, the Lord God is the one who plants this garden and he places it in Eden, in the east. And we're going to come back to that, but that's something I think important to hang on. And then he places man whom he had formed in this garden. And in this garden, out of the ground, it tells us that God is the one who makes tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food to spring up out of the ground, including the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Push this even further. We also see in Genesis 3 and 8 that God himself moves through this garden space. And that's very important. We want to hang on to that. But it tells us that in the cool of the morning, Adam and Eve could hear God, right? They could hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, and and this is uh, also indicative of what's happening here when we think about the garden as a temple space. So let's keep pushing at this a little bit on the garden side. So we obviously see that uh, Genesis sets up in creation a garden that is in Eden, that is made by God, uh, that is his from the standpoint that he created it. But do we see that anywhere else in Scripture? Well, yeah, in Isaiah 51 and 3, it says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Hmm. In Ezekiel 28 and 13, uh, we see you were in Eden, the garden of God. And then in Ezekiel 31 and 9, I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. And again, what we're seeing, right, is that this garden space uh, that was created in the beginning, 
belongs to God. It's, it's his space. It's, it's his garden that he has created. And in this space, his presence can be found. He moves through this space freely. And not only he moves through this space freely, but we also see that Adam and Eve are able to move through this space freely. So in the garden, in the very beginning, God and man are in the garden and man has unfettered, unfiltered access to God. There's no barriers. There's there's no rituals or anything that Adam and Eve have to go through to experience God's presence. He is in the garden. He has placed man in the garden as well. And God's presence is available to be accessed by Adam and by Eve at any time that they want. Now, if we keep pushing at this thing, right, we, we're talking about the garden, but we now want to kind of juxtaposition that next to a context for temples in the ancient Near East. And when we think about temples and what we see from archaeology and from history and things of that nature is that ancient temples were obviously they were designated places where people could experience the presence of the gods. And uh, and so they built these structures and the understanding is that their God, their deity inhabited this space. It was considered a, again, an otherworldly space that you could enter into to experience and enter into the presence of your particular deity. Ancient civilizations, not just Israel, but Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the Mayans, all sorts of civilizations utilize temples trying to create these unique special places where, like we mentioned in the very first episode, where uh, the realm of the gods, so to speak, overlaps with the realm of men and you can experience the presence of your deity. Now, uh, these temples were revered uh, spaces. They were exclusive places, often guarded by soldiers and statues of animal-like creatures. And usually the temple also contained images and idols of the deity that the temple was dedicated to. If you think about it, right, when you entered into the temple, there would be images um, whether uh, a sto- uh, carved out images or statues or wooden images or pictures on the wall of the deity that this temple was built for. So when you went into the temple, you should be able to look around and tell whose presence you're expecting to encounter because of the deity that's represented there in the icons and the idols that are there. And so, again, uh, from an from an ancient Near Eastern context, you've got temple spaces that are designated places where people could experience the presence of the gods. They were used across many ancient civilizations. These were revered, exclusive places that were often guarded by soldiers uh, or statues of animal-like creatures. Think about like the Sphinx in Egypt. And usually they contained images or idols of the deity that the temple was dedicated to. Uh, First Kings chapter six through nine, you get an expansive a description of the temple that Solomon builds for God. And um, if you look uh, at that, look that up online as well, you can see some artist renditions of the temple. And you really get this sense of what's happening here when these spaces are being created. Uh, and, and specifically in terms of the God of the Bible and the temple that Solomon builds, uh, being able to kind of see the progression and the imagery that's there on the walls and the significance of a lot of the, uh, the structures and, uh, the construction of the temple. But if we kind of keep pushing this though, remember, cause we're talking now about the garden 
and this idea of the garden kind of being a temple. Uh, the Old Testament records that the Israelites had to go to the temple in order to meet with God. We know that after Moses uh, receives the Ten Commandments and, and the Israelites, he gets, or rather Moses gets the instructions for building the tabernacle so that the presence of the Lord can dwell among the Israelites. And there's all sorts of ritual and, and, and practices and preparation that have to go into place for them to enter into the tabernacle and to be in the presence of the Lord. Fast forward that on to when David wants to build a temple for God. Uh, he's not allowed to by God, but Solomon, like we just mentioned, uh, builds the temple. And that is where the Israelites could then go, right, to meet with God. But we see that in the beginning in Genesis, God creates a garden. He creates a designated place where God's presence can be found. He, he creates a space where God and man can freely roam and interact without any priests, without any soldiers, without uh, any veils or curtains or anything like that. And what we see in the garden are temple elements, right? We, we've got a designated space. We have the presence of God uh, in this space. We, we see that this is where man can come and interact with God. Uh, and so we've got these elements of a temple in the garden with the exception of idols, there are no statues per se that represent God. There's no images uh, carved on anything, at least not that what's, what's uh, called out in the scripture of the God of the universe who has who's this temple space, this garden temple space is dedicated to. But if we look back more closely at scripture, we actually see that we do have some idols in the garden. If you turn to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what we see in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 is actually the last kind of piece or the missing piece, if you will, of the of the temple elements. It's the image, the idols, the icons that represent the deity that that temple space is dedicated and designated for. But what we see is, is that man and women are those images being created in the image of God. We then become the idols, so to speak, or the icons of God. We are the physical representation, so to speak, the reflection of the God of this garden temple space. And so Adam and Eve in the beginning were acceptable images of God in the garden. And this, of course, again, has temple implications. And it also has kingdom implications. It has temple implications. We just explored that because the elements of a temple would be that there would be images and icons that represented the deity that that temple was dedicated to. God says that Adam and Eve were made in his image, in his likeness. Now, it, an important distinction needs to be made here. This is not 
being the image of God as first Colossians, as Colossians one tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But what we see is, is that man and woman, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, that we are a reflection of, of his nature, his characteristics, those kinds of things. We represent him in the earth. And then it has kingdom implications because he then says, not only do you reflect the deity that this garden space, this, this temple garden space is dedicated to, but I'm actually now giving you authority. I'm giving you the right to rule on my behalf in this space that I've created to subdue the earth, to, um, to be fruitful, to be, to multiply, to fill the earth with other images of me, basically is what God is saying. So that all of, of the earth, right? It reflects now the deity that created everything. And so there are temple implications from what we see in the very beginning in Genesis in the garden. There are kingdom implications that have to do with dominion and with rule, but something happens, right? Something happens in that time and in that space that causes a great split. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Complete in Christ podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or series, you can send them to questions at completeinchristpodcast.org. Please include your name, where you're from, and the specific episode you're referencing. Also, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It gives us feedback that helps us to keep improving and provide some insight for those who may be listening for the very first time. Again, my name is Charles Wright, and until next time, be blessed.